Good morning, everyone. <laughs> There's a saying in, well, it's actually not a saying, I shouldn't elevate it to that status, but somebody said, um, although you don't uh, uh, knock, it's already open. Although you don't seek, it's already found. Kohen Yamada said this about our practice and the kind of entry to the path. Although you don't knock, it's already open. Although you don't seek, it's already found. This is the fundamental principle of, of Zen, especially. It's already found, you're already home. This is, this is the way, this is the path. And yet, we have these uh, moments where we're kind of floundering and forgetting that. And this is also mentioned many times in the sutras, but this is part of our experience, that it's not open. In fact, we can't even find it. We don't even know where the gate is. And should we seek? And if, which direction should we go? So luckily, in, out of compassion, compassion is the most important manifestation of the Buddha Dharma and the most important uh, quality that we cultivate is compassion, this willingness to meet people where they are with the, with the instructions that they need. Out of compassion, there are teachings about paths and gates and methods and stages. So the teachings come from compassion. But behind it all is the understanding that it's already found, it's already open, you're already there, you're already complete. If you weren't, it wouldn't help much to seek, I have to tell you that. <laughs> but you already have it and it's a question or a a world of just uncovering this, uncovering, getting used to it, experiencing it, experiencing who we really are and this amazing life that we live. So getting used to that amazing miracle is the support of the Sangha, helps us do that, get used to it. So there are these stages and these paths and things that we get to cultivate and one of the descriptions that I, I really love for some reason, I really resonate with the description of the five paths, five margas. And the first one is uh, the path of accumulation or preparation, we say. And the second one is the path of joining. And the third is the path of seeing. The fourth is the path of meditation. And the fifth of, is the path of no more learning. So even though Zen says you're actually at that fifth path, no more learning, we have to do the other ones too. I'm going to eventually today talk about um, some historical things about our school, if that's okay with you all, preparing you. Is that okay? Is it okay to have a dog in the room and a cat? <laughs> talk about history. These are all part of the path of accumulation. <laughs> it's true too. <laughs> So the path of uh, accumulation or preparation, the one little seed that uh, is 
consistent, no matter what we're doing, is the, uh, is the seed of aspiration or wanting, desire. It's aspiration. It's wanting something. I want to wake up, for instance. I want to understand more about my life. I want to be more beneficial in life. It's a positive impulse. So the path of accumulation has that as its uh, universal quality. It's always there, desire. Even if we don't see it, we may not know it's there all the time, but every now and then we get a taste of it, it's there. I want to. Um, and then everything that we encounter is part of the path of accumulation. Eventually, all of our problems are seen as part of our path, all of our qualities that we either like or don't like about ourselves, all of our experiences are part of the path of accumulation, preparation. All of them are in the mix. And for me, I think probably the first time I really understood that, it's, a, it's like weights go off the shoulders because, oh yeah, these problems are my path. This way of seeing things is my path. These habits of mine are my path. The situation I was born into, this is it. This is the path. So we accumulate, we prepare, and then these aren't exactly linear because they will circle back because, as I said, we're actually already at number five, the path of no more learning. But uh, we... We avoid linearity all the time because it's not really what's happening in the universe. But the next one is joining. And I, the joining path means that there's a uh, kind of a path, there's a joining with the path of seeing, being able to see. So joining has several levels. And the first one is characterized by a feeling of warmth, which I really like. So there's a feeling of warmth, and one of the images that is used is like when two sticks are rubbed together, eventually it's going to make fire, but there's warmth. Two sticks, hands rubbed together, there's warmth that happens. And then, actually, there's fire, there's real heat in the path of joining. And I, when I meditate on this, when I hold this in my mind, it's... Um, it's so interesting that the, the sensation of heat is confused in our world. The sensation of emotional fire is confused in our world. So consider a world, a teaching, where the heat of practice is a good thing. Isn't that nice? So I think um, one of the things that these teachings can offer to the world is a sense of really beneficial heat. We need heat. We need passion to um, be of use, to be beneficial. We need heat and passion. So when people, when we human beings have really heated emotions, um, that word usually means kind of a negative feeling. Oh, she was so hot and bothered. Well, we need that heat. And so how can we cultivate it in a way? We have friendly ways to do it, like um, sports, things like that, where we are allowed to be heated in kind of a neutral context. And in other contexts, it's really considered rather harmful. But in parties and in dance parties, 
heat is generated and it can either be good or it can be harmful. Depends on what the other components of the event are. So just to say that the quality of heat and passion is needed in our practice or to advance. Isn't that nice? Yeah. So equanimity, which happens a little bit later on in the descriptions of the path, means an evenness of mind. It doesn't mean a passionless mind. It means evenness and a sort of ability, a definite ability to balance passion and physical exuberance in a, in a wholesome way. Really understanding, being able to see um, what the other components of our life experience are. Does that make sense? Passion, good. Heat, good. <laughs> what it gets attached to in our habit realm is part of what we study in uh, the path of seeing. So we've got the path of joining, and then we are getting close, we get a glimpse of this ability to see, and the ability to see means both directions, like toward total liberation, really seeing clearly, and also at what has brought us to where we are, and appreciation of all the things that have brought us to where we are. So it's a little more um, awake than just the path of, of joining, when in the, excuse me, in the path of, uh, yeah, in the path of joining and accumulation, where we see our problems and all of our life experience as, as part of our wonderful life. But in seeing, we also see it more clearly, how it has come to be. So in that context, um, I want to say that, uh, I put some pictures out there on the bulletin board of Rinso Inn. Uh, Rinso Inn is this temple. Rinso means um, venerable woods. Isn't that nice? Rinso Inn, venerable woods temple. And venerable woods temple is in Japan. And I also have some pictures of like Gale. Where's Gale? Oh, wow. Hi. Leo, you and Leo is speaking with Gail's voice. I've been this entire time. <laughs> there are pictures of you, there are pictures of Tim on our big journey to uh, Japan some, a few years ago, and we went to Rinso Inn. Um, how do I contextualize this? It's important to know where we came from. There's a little bit of we carry in our Western culture a little bit of this, it's also in, in England, a little bit of this idea that it's, a bet, it's better to just create it yourself. That amateurs are better than professionals. This is ours, we're just gonna do it our way, it's better that way. Do any of you know who uh, Shackleton is? Anybody else? Great, great um, explorer of the 19th century and early 20th also, early 20th. So he's one of the people who decided that it would be a really cool thing to get a boat together and go to Antarctica and be the first. And this is kind of a, a human thing to do. And they didn't have polypropylene underwear, that's a big thing. They only had wool. <laughs> The stories and the photographs are just amazing. For some reason, I got really entranced by this some years ago. So I have lots of books of Shackleton's journey, partly because 
he was so devoted to the group experience that nobody died on his journey. He really, he would do these heroic things to go back and rescue people who'd been left behind. It was, it's an amazing story, but one of the features of it is that I think they had to make um, one effort, then they had to come back, and then they got some more supplies and funding, and then they did it again. So on the second journey, they actually had some sled dogs and sleds and skis. But they had been told about this by some Norwegian explorers, and so they thought it would be cheating to use sled dogs and sleds and skis. So they pulled the sleds by human effort with the dogs on the sleds. <laughs> so this is an example of thinking, you know, well, amateurs, we'll, we'll figure out how to do this. We don't need those instructions. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> they also had a Model T. That's a car. That didn't work either. <laughs> they wouldn't use the sled dogs. I think about that from time to time because um, they thought that consulting with others who knew more about it was cheating. Isn't that interesting? So where did we come from? And we are connected to our, this Zen Center has been here now for 20 years on, in the Heights and 10 years before that at the Unitarian Church but it's also connected to temples in, on the West Coast, and it is directly connected to Rinzoen in Japan. And so next weekend, October 22nd and 23rd, they're celebrating their anniversary, Rinzoen. And I'm going, two of us are going to represent uh, Suzuki Roshi's lineage uh, in the West. Um, they're celebrating their 550th anniversary. Isn't that great? Yeah. And the current head monk, head teacher, has been here. He was here in 2012 to help us do the mountain seat ceremony. And when you think about him, Hoitsu Suzuki Roshi, the son of Suzuki Roshi, he's a fiery guy. He's fiery and alive and funny, and he moves all over the place. Um, so you see the kind of passion of Zen and the, the urge that it has taken to keep this spreading. In fact, Rinso Inn was founded in 1472, according to the records, although it actually was closer to the sea. Right now it's on a mountain, as those of us who have been there know. It's in a beautiful mountain with many trees, but it was closer to the coast. Why was it moved? Exactly. It was moved um, centuries ago because of the tsunami. Already tsunamis were part of their land, and uh, like other humans, we forget. <laughs> they forgot that tsunamis would come. So it was founded in 1472, and this is another feature of our, our Zen world because we're very devoted to the teachings of Dogen Zenji. So that's the founder of, of Soto Zen. And Dogen Zenji's teachings are very clear. Um, although you don't knock, it's already open. Although you don't seek, it's already found. He didn't say that, but that's the teaching. Just sit, just be this body mind. 
And he had to go deeper and deeper into the mountains to maintain that pure teaching. Luckily, his Dharma grandson, Kazan, um, decided this is a great teaching, but we actually need to use some skillful means to let other people come in. And then his grandson, Gasan Joseki, who died, he, he was born about 20 years after Dogen Zenji died, and then he died 100 years after. Um, he really spread Soto Zen around Japan with the understanding that everybody should be able to do this beautiful practice. So we are famous for being the practice of peasants <laughs> and simple-minded people. Ready for that? <laughs> Renzai Zen is for people who really want to intellectually work out. The, the boundaries really aren't so clear, but because we like to do both kinds of practice, but the important thing was adapt the practice to the needs of the people. So when you when you have this little context, which I like to do, Dogen Zenji died in 1253 had a grandson in the Dharma, another grandson in the Dharma, who died a hundred years after he did. A little more than a hundred years after that, Rinzoen was founded as part of this spread of Zen around Japan. And then, a few centuries after that, because of causes and conditions, Suzuki Roshi came to the United States. And part of the causes and conditions of that were that World War II had happened, and his temple, Rinso-in, like all temples in Japan, like everything in Japan, was really poor. They really struggled after the war. People were starving, and um, so Suzuki Roshi accepted an assignment to come to the United States and lead the temple in San Francisco, Sokoji. That's why he came. And people, Japanese priests, to this day, come and accept an assignment for a few years. And the unusual thing about Suzuki Roshi was he decided to stay. And there are a few other unusual circumstances. Alan Watts, for instance, who was, had a radio show about Zen and he invited Suzuki Roshi to come to the radio show. And so people heard him and then people wanted to practice with him. And he decided to stay, partly because he liked it that American students had such big feet. He was really proud of that. She was outside the door, which is enormous. So he really <laughs> and he liked, Suzuki Roshi was a very deep practitioner, and he, he liked the, um, that aspiration that he met in American students. We just want to know, we just want to wake up, we just want to be of benefit in the world. So that's a context, and I'll be going there. Um, so on the path of seeing, it's very important that we look at what brought us here. And what made this possible is those things. All those things is what made it possible for us to study Zen. We didn't just invent it, but we are adapting it. And when you look at the picture, there's a picture out there of the beautiful little zendo at Rinso Inn and the backs of some of the members sitting there. And it looks like our backs, but it's his local people sitting in the zendo. So you look at that and you look ahead. Um, 
The next path after seeing is meditation, where you're meditating on the emptiness of all of this. But before we get to the emptiness of all this, the path of seeing also involves looking very, very clearly at our world and very, very clearly at everything that's going on in our world. So, absent the ability to look clearly at our world, there's this phrase that uh, one, an artist, photographer artist uses, which is, um, don't sleepwalk through your life. Don't sleepwalk through what's happening in your life or what's happening in the world. Don't sleepwalk. We are in amazing uh, times, and the circumstances around us are very, very serious. So the path of seeing means we see that. We're not seeking to remove ourselves from the situation that we're in. We're seeking to see it clearly. And this uh, takes all of our effort and all of our practice, and understanding that Rinso Inn is supporting us to see it clearly. San Francisco Zen Center is supporting us to see it clearly. Our Sangha here is supporting each of us as individuals to see clearly what's happening. And then the responses to that vision, what we see, what catches our attention, the responses to that will be unique and in our, our personal realm. So learning how to um, release the passion and the fire that we've got is one of the goals of our practice. We don't want to leap to that evenness of mind um, and damp down the passion. The passion is there. And learning how to release that and have equanimity with the passion in our times is what our practice is meant to help us to do. We have this land now an hour basically west, and a bunch of us have been out there recently and doing the things that we do. But and Vicky is out there now with Scout doing some things that she's doing. It's wonderful to go out there and nurture this land, and the benefit of being out there nurtures us. There's a benefit of being in nature that um, can't be quantified. We have to be in nature. All of you have to be in nature. And in a way, it's kind of easy to forget. I forget it. It's like, oh, Houston is fine. It's great. I love it. I love the people. I love driving on concrete or whatever, asphalt all day long. I love it. This is what <laughs> people do. We build these things and we play with them and then we move them around or we carve through them. And do all of these things, we manipulate our environment, we're very good at that. And then we need, as you know, creatures of earth and fire and air and water, we need to be back in those elements also. And then it nourishes us in a way that can't be uh, substituted in some other way. There's no substitute for being as close to nature and water as we can get. It has to happen for us. So we need love, we need compassion, we need air and water and food and things like that, and we need to, we need to be surrounded by it. 
even a little dose of it um, is transformative. The path of seeing is partly watching what we're unwilling to see. The path of seeing is partly um, seeing, I'm not ready to see that, and that's okay. Path of seeing is also, maybe, maybe that's true, I need to be in nature, but I'm terribly busy. Or, I can't stand the um, uh, troubles of the world, I'm not going to look at them. That's also okay, believe me. Everybody needs to rest. We need to um, see, and then we need to see what we need, and we need to rest. The, there is a um, bodhisattva level. There are ten bodhisattva levels. So the, path, the first bodhisattva level is the, is the uh, path of joy. Entry-level entry bodhisattva is like joy. Oh my God, I get to practice in this world. Isn't that nice? I'm not very good at it, but I get to practice in this world. There's some joy just in knowing that whatever is happening, we get to practice with it, and I'm alive in it. Then there are ten other levels, but when <laughs> they, all are, they all have many things that we get to learn. Level seven is the non-regressing bodhisattva. All the others, you go back to square one a lot. So it's okay. We're all going back to square one all the time. At least I am. Maybe I'm talking to seventh level bodhisattvas. <laughs> 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 Probably am. Um, level seven bodhisattva. And the main skill of level seven bodhisattva is very cool. Total skillful means. Total ability, supreme ability at adapting the teaching to the needs of individuals. Mm -hmm. Isn't that nice? So, total willingness to say what this person needs, what this situation needs is this. And so, skillful means is the highest level development. Then, after that, you develop compassion and various powers, but highest level for, for a bodhisattva who then doesn't regress. So again, all of these teachings about the paths are just meant to reassure us that um, the workings of each of our complex minds um, can be met. Wherever we, we are, there's a teaching that can meet us and help us. I wish you could all go with me to Rinso Inn. They would just love that. They would absolutely love it. And there will be big celebrations. Part of my job, uh, you know, in the international department, part of my job is to um, be a translator. I think all of you, I, I think probably all of you are translators between one friend group and another. Do you think that's true? One of your worlds and another, your job is to sort of translate. Well, they really meant this, and then you have to translate. Well, what they really are trying to do is this. So my job is often to translate culturally between this Western culture and Japanese culture. And um, it can be quite challenging sometimes. <laughs> oh, but <laughs> one of the really charming um, translations I had to do in terms of explanation I had to do was to explain that in Japan, um, 
here in America, people like to send cards, send a birthday card. In Japan, they send telegrams. And there are these companies that prepare the telegrams and then deliver them. They're called telegrams, but they're not what we, you know, Western Union. It's that you send your message to a company that then puts it on a card and then delivers that like a telegram. Okay. <laughs> and so that is really important in Japan. It really shows that you're there. And so at Rinsoen, there will be a stack of telegrams from all over Japan and a stack from all over the United States. But one of my translation jobs was to explain to Americans that, because Americans said, no, I'll just send a card. <laughs> no, please. <laughs> Sign up for this telegram service, tell them what to put on it, and let them deliver it with the flowers. That, that will meet the need. That will be recognized as honoring and celebrating. That was one of my translation jobs. And when I get there, probably there will be some bizarre presence from Americans, and I'll say, oh, yeah, they just didn't have time to send a telegram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, explaining what gestures of respect mean um, is really important for us. So all of us being able to tell our friends, um, soften, soften misunderstandings and say, well, they really meant to do something kind. They love you um, is one of the very beneficial things we can do in this world. Not elevating um, disharmony, instead trying to turn things toward harmony. Last night, no, I'll, I'll tell you this later during question and answer. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you now. <laughs> Last night, for some reason, we, we worked yesterday on our land and we had a lot of fun here, this land. And so physical activity, we had such fun. Um, but for some reason, at a, around one, I couldn't sleep up like there. And there's this phrase for the Buddha and for other teachers, it's like the awakened one. So last night I thought, I don't want to be the awakened one. <laughs> I want to be the asleep one. 